From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Efficiency is good, right? We love efficiency. We want things to be more efficient. We build things that create efficiencies. We're constantly looking for efficiencies inside of our business. We want things to move fast and we want them to be, well, efficient. But what if efficiency can actually lead to inefficiency? It's an interesting idea and a challenging one that I think we really need to step back and consider. And we're going to do that on this episode, though I'm going to tell you, (laughs) I guess in the spirit of inefficiency, that I came to this idea in a very unexpected way. So uh, if you're listening to this show with kids right now, earmuffs for just a moment um, because of this. I don't know if where were you in the 90s? But in the 90s, there was, you know how we have like the robotic sex panic going on? So that's a sex therapist named Gloria Brame that I was talking with for my other podcast, which is called Build for Tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But anyway, talking to Gloria, she says, you know, the robotic sex panic. And I say, yeah, (laughs) I I, I, don't what robotic sex? I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, when somebody says, you know about that thing, right? And you say yes, even though you have no idea what they're saying. That, that's what I did. But then I had to go back because I was like, robotic sex paddock. But like if we make a, a pleasure toy that can actually give us what we want, that somehow Western civilization will crash. Yeah, that is a thing people are concerned about for reasons that Well, I spent a lot of time trying to understand because this is the thing that I do with my other podcast called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing, and then I figure out where it came from and what important things were missing and how to be more optimistic about tomorrow. And I decided after talking with Gloria that, you know, maybe I should understand the crazy robot sex panic. (laughs) And uh, anyway, you can hear more of that if you would like. Just go to Build for Tomorrow and find an episode called the case for sex robots. But okay, here's why I'm telling you about all this now. So (laughs) Gloria expressed this concern. She repeated this concern that robots would replace meaningful human relationships. And that is something that, of course, we, we hear about quite a lot, not just with sex robots, but with you know, all sorts of other technologies today. And it's something that I have seen expressed in my studies of the history of innovation over and over again as it relates to other technologies. And so I got to wondering, is there any actual example of this ever happening? Is is, is there a precedent here? And so I, I called around. Eventually, I reached the president of the Society for the History of Technology, and I asked her the question. And she told me that I really need to talk to a guy named Edward Tenner. And so I called him. My name is Edward Tenner. My original field was modern European history, in which I have a PhD. But I have been involved in science and technology ever since I became science editor of Princeton University Press in the 1970s. And I'll tell you more about Edward in a moment. But I I realize uh, I promised that this was going to be about efficiency and inefficiency. And then I took a very long detour into sex robots. So let me bring it back to what is going to be directly relevant to you. Edward, when I call him to talk about sex robots, he says, look, you know, this is interesting and all, but 
If you want to really evaluate what's going on here, you have to look at what a sex robot represents because what it represents is efficiency. It is a tool built for maximum satisfaction, a tool that eliminates everything that's difficult about having sex with somebody or finding someone to have sex with or whatever. It is just deeply, deeply efficient. And there is a problem with efficiency. Efficiency, it turns out, is not the ultimate solution to things because of what Edward calls the efficiency paradox. The efficiency paradox is based on the idea that too much efficiency in the short run can make us less efficient in the long run. So I am not an opponent of efficiency, but one of my points, which is pretty obvious to people who have studied the history of technology or of entrepreneurship, is that innovation very seldom can be done efficiently. There are always lots of mistakes involved. So if you have software or any other arrangement that optimizes things too soon, you might be passing up the biggest opportunity. Ah, and now you see why I want you to hear from Edward Tenor, because what he's talking about is really a business problem and a very interesting one at that, which is that we strive to make our own operations as efficient as possible. And we also, or many of us, build things that make other people's lives efficient. And while all of that is good, it can create an inefficiency. It can blind us to the best and most valuable parts of creation. Which is why Edward has a recommendation not for abandoning the efficiency that the web and artificial intelligence can provide, because I'm all for that within limits, but recognizing those limits and arranging for the best possible combination of the automatic, uh, the artificial intelligence and intuition and the human factor. And that is why I want you to hear from Edward Tenor. When I talked to Edward, I said, look, okay, we're going to have a conversation about sex robots for Build for Tomorrow, but also we're going to have a conversation about efficiency for problem solvers, because I think that you listening right now, while you can apply this to sex robots if you'd like, and you know, go ahead and do it, but I think that you need to think about the efficiency paradox and how it applies to your own life and your own business and the things that you are building. So after the break, we're getting into exactly that with Edward Tenor. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And now, our next sponsor. If you're a small business owner who travels, then here is a credit card built for you. Chase Card Services and Hyatt Hotels have partnered together to create the new World of Hyatt Business Credit Card, designed to reward small business owners and Hyatt customers for how they do business. Like any innovative entrepreneur, this card is adaptive, and its rewards are personalized so that card members receive even more points in the categories that they spend the most on. This means that every business expense, from hotel rooms to cell phone bills to shipping fees and more, can be a vehicle for personalized and valuable rewards. 
which can be used on one-of-a-kind experiences across World of Hyatt's 19 brands and more than 1,000 locations worldwide. The World of Hyatt business credit card is now available and has an annual fee of $199. For more information about the new World of Hyatt business credit card, visit chase.com slash world of Hyatt. Again, chase.com slash world of Hyatt. All right, we're back talking about the efficiency paradox with Edward Tenor. And before we get into it, I said I was going to give you a little more background on Edward. So let me just do that. As Edward said earlier, his original field was modern European history in which he has a PhD. He's been involved in science and technology for just decades. He was the science editor of Princeton University Press in the 1970s. And uh, these days he's an independent writer and speaker, but he's also a so-called distinguished scholar of the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian Institution. I've also been a guest lecturer at Princeton and a visiting researcher at the Institute for Advanced Study. And I should note, the efficiency paradox isn't just a phrase he throws around. He has written a book called The Efficiency Paradox. So when we started talking about this, I said to Edward, look, this is really fascinating because here's something that I hear so often in entrepreneurship circles. People want to be more efficient. They believe that more efficiency leads to more time for other things. And that's all wonderful and good. And and of course, some of those people go on to try to create tools that create efficiencies. But the point you make, I think, is an important one, which is that let us not believe that efficiency solves all problems and that, in fact, some of the greatest path to creation is sometimes a kind of exploration that is deeply inefficient. Exactly. That, that's exactly the point of, of my book. And I would add, as far as entrepreneurship goes, that in pure efficiency, in brute power, the giant companies will always have an advantage. Where entrepreneurs, I believe, can stand out is in combining technology and the right technology with the human touch, with their understanding of their customers, closeness to their customers, the ability to be able to relate to people in a way that really big organizations can't. So I'm all for using everything that artificial intelligence offers, but What I'm calling for is the right balance. That reminds me of a piece that we wrote quite a while ago or ran quite a a while ago by a former marketing executive, Instagram and YouTube and a couple of the other big tech companies who has come to be concerned by the degree to which companies think that they can automate their marketing and that customers can be reached through data alone. And what he had preached was that consumers cannot be data. People cannot just be data. They have to be people. And that may be an inefficient means of reaching them. Obviously, if if people could just be turned into data, then they can be very easily reached. And the thing that I found appealing about his argument, which I find appealing about what you're saying, is that if you are an upstart and you are looking at all the competition around you, very moneyed competition, very technologically savvy competition, that as they have built efficiencies, would you would it be fair to say, do you think that they have also left open an opportunity for somebody to come along and do something better simply by means of being more balanced about how they think about creation and how they reach out to people and connect with people? Because efficiency is great, but the more that you lean into data, the more that you're going to forget that there are completely other, more innovative, and perhaps more meaningful ways to connect with people. Absolutely. In fact, 
the weakness of data analysis is that it's great at pattern recognition. It's great at seeing hidden relationships. It's great at seeing who are going to be the best customers, what people like, what people don't like, or rather what people have liked and what people have not liked. But very often the biggest successes are based on ideas that seem really strange to begin with, but that people later embrace and that later became wildly popular. For example, the Eiffel Tower was considered a monstrosity by the elite of Paris when it was completed, and people couldn't wait for it to be torn down. But the aesthetic of the Eiffel Tower started to grow on people, and then it also became surprisingly practical because it was ideal for radio transmit decades later. And in fact, there was a con man who made a small fortune by telling scrap metal dealers that he was licensed to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap. And the basis of that was the rumor, the early rumor that the, life, the Eiffel Tower was a temporary structure that was going to come down one day. So it, it didn't seem as stupid as it, as it now does. But, but the point was that this was something that was considered really impractical and inefficient and turned out to be a real moneymaker. The same thing is true of many works of art. Look, at my industry at publishing, there were 20 publishers who turned down Harry Potter. And I'm sure it was because their historical sales data suggested that there really wasn't money to be made in that book. It was just different from what had come before. So the innovator always has the advantage that if they have the right intuition, if they understand their readers or the, the, the people who are listening or the people who are, who are uh, viewing something, if they have that intuition, then they can override the kind of uh, automated uh, data systems that the big people are depending on, and they can make the breakthroughs. That's where the independents have the advantage. I love that example of Harry Potter it makes me wonder if you have identified any kind of test or something that people should be thinking about as they are trying to determine what side of automation they should be on. Because there is surely something to be said for crunching the data, seeing what has been successful in the past, and then using that to guide you towards what to do next. But like you say, doing that exclusively is going to lead you to turn up Harry Potter. So where's the line? How can people figure out where to draw that boundary? I would say that people definitely should explore all the data available with the best tools that are available. That's a good way of avoiding terrible mistakes. So I'm not critical at all of that. But I think the most important thing for an entrepreneur is a kind of direct knowledge of what the, the target market wants, which is sometimes not already apparent in the data because the data tells you what people have liked, but they, they really can't tell you the reaction to something new. For example, the publisher who did accept Harry Potter after all the others turned it down, the, the editor really consulted his eight-year-old daughter and he gave her part of the book to read and she loved it. So. One person's kid outweighed all of the collective uh, data of publishers because as, a, as an editor, I know that when I was deciding about a book, I would look in our historical sales records. Now, of course, there are services that you can subscribe to that will tell you what 
all how all kinds of books have sold. So you can see the patterns. But I also saw the limits of that because the the people's tastes can change. For example, I remember once I had I met a publisher in Princeton, New Jersey, when I was still an undergraduate, and he said, "Well, you know, in publishing, we know a lot of things." For example, he said, "Books about American Indians don't sell," and this was just before a wave of bestsellers on Native American studies. So very often the received wisdom of an industry based on years and years of experience is going to be overturned. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be overturned all the time or that you can come out with an unconventional idea and depend on people to accept it. But it does mean, for example, that somebody who was alert could probably have seen that was a new generation of Native American authors who had new perspectives on American history, on their tribal cultures, and that there was a renaissance that was shaping up. Now, there weren't books already, or there weren't that many books already published that would give you the data to predict that. But if you were really informed about that, then through your personal experience, then you could take action. When I published my first book with Knopf, my editor, a uh, man named Ashbel Green, one of the great editors, he was always traveling to campuses. He was not one of those those editors who, who just was having lunch with literary agents. He was traveling to campuses. He was He subscribed to eight newspapers because he felt that there was no substitute for having your your feet on the ground and seeing firsthand what was going on. And what was interesting was that he was really the custodian of the data of his company. He was the reprint manager. And to some people, reprint manager might seem like one of the dullest titles that you could have in publishing. But actually, in publishing, your real profits come in the reprints. Your real profits come in the books that are going for decades after decades. And at Knopf, for example, one of those was a book called The Prophet with a PH by Khalil Gibran, a, a, a Lebanese poet. And Knopf originally published that book not because they thought it was would be a bestseller, but because their advisor said it had literary value. And that book became the most profitable book in the history of Alfred A. Knopf. I think it's now in the public domain, but they were selling it for years and years in cloth only. And when they started to advertise it, sales went down, actually. So it was a, it was a magical book. But the point was that the Knopfs were as successful. I'm sorry, the light has gone off here. I'm just going to break in here uh, to explain what was going on. So Edward was talking to me from some conference room and uh, we, you know, we were just connected by video chat. And as we were talking, suddenly the lights went off and the, the room was, was pitch black. So you'll, you'll see, uh, I should wave my arms or something. Uh, yes. But see, here you have, here, right here you have, there right, you here you, right here you have a problem of, of, of automation and artificial intelligence <laughs> that, that, you know, like it doesn't detect somebody who's just, just sitting still and, and talking. So you have a demonstration right there. Yeah, well, you know what's actually funny about that is how smart the idea of motion sensor lighting is, except that it has not seeming to take into account the thing that people actually do in a room, which is that they sit down and they don't move for a while. It's a wild thing that I, I suppose actually does do a nice job of revealing how creating something for efficiency's sake can be really good at solving one problem, but it can create another problem, which is the opportunity for somebody else to come along and solve that problem. 
Right. No, so you could you could have, for example, uh, some little figure that you could put on the table that would kind of wave its arms at intervals and, and keep your lights from going off. Ah, so how about that? You uh, you came to this episode expecting a conversation about efficiency and inefficiency. And uh, first you got a strange detour into sex robots. And now at the very end, you get a great business idea, which is something that keeps lights on in rooms that automatically turn off because of some idea, some misguided idea about efficiency. All right. Well, after that, Edward and I went on to talk about sex robots. And like I said, you can find that if you are so interested at The Case for Sex Robots. That is an episode of my podcast, Build for Tomorrow. So you just go find Build for Tomorrow wherever you're listening to Problem Solvers. And thanks again to Edward Tenor for indulging all my many directions. I would say it was deeply inefficient and yet, I hope, illuminating. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.